Good morning. So today's podcast is on a topic that has been requested to have um, a bit of teaching on and with the current lockdown. And this is a condition called celiac disease. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to talk about why is it important to, of course, learn about celiac disease and what is a bit of the um, pathophysiology, what symptoms, both gastrointestinal and non-gastrointestinal symptoms, and really nail down the answer of what is celiac disease. And it can become overly complicated and sometimes overly simplified but really today's talk is to provide clarity and therefore if you see patients with suspected celiac disease or which is probably more important and pressing at the moment if you get an exam question how do you say well what is the diagnosis in this patient what makes me suspicious that this might be celiac disease and what tests do I do? How do I investigate someone with suspected celiac disease? And how do I interpret those findings? And that's really what you need to kind of nail down in progress test. And in single best answer questions is when do I suspect celiac disease? And knowing what you will know by the end of this podcast will help you clinically and will help you in exams as well. So where to begin? So let's have a let's have a few things. So our screening data says that the incidence of CLAC is one in a hundred people. So I know we've done PowerPoint presentations on things like Down syndrome and Turner syndrome, both of which are associated with celiac disease. So there's a degree of crossover. But when we look at the relative incidence of Turner syndrome and Down syndrome, and they've had their own podcasts, I think it is potentially useful that a condition that affects one in every hundred people have its own podcast as well. Our estimates estimate that 10 to 20% of people with celiac disease have been diagnosed. So therefore, as medical professionals, maybe when people present with other problems, doing a systems review and knowing the symptoms that would make you suspicious of a diagnosis of celiac disease will improve that over the years to come. And again, we'll talk about the big um, things that have been changed about it. So I'm going to make reference to a guideline. Um, and if you want to Google it, um, it is the B S P G H A N. And we'll talk about that a bit later. But this is a guideline that was basically published in the um, Archives of Disease and Childhood in 2013. And is a very good guideline for talking about it. So if you want to have a look at that, that's absolutely fine. Um, and there's a lot of input from the Welsh Paediatric gastroenterology society as well so to start off with to call 
Celiac disease, the old definition used to be a gluten-associated enteropathy. And that's kind of where people used to leave it in traditional textbooks. We now know that it's not simply a gastrointestinal condition, but is immune mediated and it's systemic. Because the argument would be, how do you get the non-gastrointestinal symptoms that we'll go through if this is a purely gastrointestinal disorder? And why is the association of celiac with type 1 diabetes and autoimmune thyroiditis, autoimmune liver disease? Um, why is there an association if this isn't autoimmune? So the key thing is if someone was to say to you maybe 10 years ago, define celiac disease in the older textbook, you would say this is a gluten associated enteropathy and is a good starting point. But it's also important to remember celiac is not simply a gastrointestinal condition, but is immune mediated, systemic. Okay. What causes it? Well, we know there's strong dependence on HLA. So HLA is the human leukocyte antigen and the two types that if you were making an A4 sheet to revise with or flashcards, the two HLA types are DQ2 and DQ8. So again, celiac disease is an immune mediated systemic disorder associated with HLA, DQ2 and DQ8. So it is elicited by gluten, okay, in genetically susceptible individuals. And the presentation is variable, which is the problem that I think some people come up with is you get a combination of things. So you get gluten dependent clinical manifestations, okay? You have a different level in different people of celiac disease specific antibodies and enteropathy. So the extent to which it affects um, your villi and etc. is variable in every person. So therefore the clinical features you are looking for will be different, okay? There is a classical presentation and a non-classical presentation. And I think what we're going to focus on is the classical presentation, okay? All patients with suspected celiac disease should have their diagnosis established by a paediatric gastroenterologist and therefore follow up either under a paediatric gastroenterologist that makes sense or a paediatrician with a specialist interest in celiac disease. Okay, and they should have access to a dietetic service. So the first thing I'm going to say about is symptomatic children. Okay, so what symptoms make us think that someone has got celiac disease? Celiac disease being an immune mediated systemic disorder, strongly dependent on HLA DQ2 and HLA DQ8. Symptoms that we might be looking for. So, persistent diarrhea, faltering growth and idiopathic short stature, abdominal pain, vomiting, 
abdominal distension, constipation, so remember it can present with diarrhea and or constipation, dermatitis hepatiformis, which is a skin problem associated with celiac disease that I will put pictures in the accompanying PowerPoint presentation, dental enamel defects, osteoporosis or pathological fractures, delayed menarche, so initiation of periods, unexplained anemia or an iron deficient anemia unresponsive to iron supplementation, recurrent aphthous stomatitis, again I'll put pictures of that in there, unexplained liver disease and lassitude or weakness. So they are you're symptomatic and I think it's fair to say some of those are symptoms involving the gastrointestinal tract and some of those are non-gastrointestinal tract symptoms. So people are normally quite good at remembering that you can get abdominal pain, distension, constipation, diarrhea, but maybe the ones that need reminding of are the osteoporosis, the dental enamel defects, the delayed menarche and other stuff. So what is important to note in the medical history? What past medical history, other conditions they have, or conditions that people in their family might have that will increase the risk of celiac disease? The percentages I'm going to quote are a guide and they are not meant to be memorised. They are as a guide and not meant to be memorised. Type 1 diabetes is an associated condition with celiac disease, 8%. Selective IgA deficiency, estimates vary from 1% to 8%. It's important because one of the tests that we do, the IgA TTG that we're going to talk about later, will give you a false result if you're IgA deficient. So a lot of labs now will measure the serum IgA as well and actually not do the IgA TTG if they're IgA deficient, won't proceed to the second part of the test. Syndromes. So two of these conditions we have done PowerPoint and podcasts on. Down syndrome, so 5% to 12%. Turner syndrome, 4 to 8%. Williams syndrome about 8% as well and we there will be a PowerPoint in the future on um, Williams syndrome specifically in relation to cardiac defects. Autoimmune thyroiditis is about 15% other conditions autoimmune liver disease unexplained raised transaminases ALT and AST on your liver function test without no liver disease intersusception dermatitis hepatiformis, and relatives of a celiac patient. If you're a first degree relative, you've got a 10% risk. If you're a HLA match sibling, so the DQ2 and the DQ8, 30 to 40%. And if you're a monozygotic twin, 70%. There is a clear genetic basis for this based on those percentages and an association with other autoimmune conditions. So to add a layer to that, we said, Celiac disease is not simply a gastrointestinal condition, but is immune-mediated, 
systemic disorder strongly dependent on HLA-DQ2 and DQ8. And we can say now there is an association with autoimmune conditions and there is a genetic component based upon in HLA-matched siblings, the risk is higher. And in monozygotic twins, the risk is even higher. So who do we test? So if one in every hundred people have got celiac disease, what should we do? So with these guidelines in 2013, universal population screening wasn't currently advised and it isn't currently advised now. Low threshold for investigating symptomatic children and those with associated conditions that we've talked about, okay? We know through our estimates, if 10 to 20% of total people with celiac disease have been diagnosed, that means 80 to 90% of them haven't been. So therefore, we have a low threshold for investigating people for celiac disease. So let's, and I will include the flow chart. Let's have a look at, so if you've got symptomatic children, so again, let's revise what we're looking for. So if you've got a symptomatic child with persistent diarrhea, faltering growth, idiopathic short stature, abdominal pain, vomiting, abdominal distension, constipation, dermatitis epitiformis, problems with their dental enamel, osteoporosis, pathological fractures, delayed menarche, unexplained anemia, or iron deficiency anemia unresponsive to treatment, recurrent apthostomatitis, unexplained liver disease, and lassitude or weakness, then we screen them. This is a blood test. So we measured the total IgA and your anti-TTG antibodies. We need to ensure there's an adequate amount of gluten in the diet to avoid a false negative result, okay? Remember that a false negative result is that they have got the condition, celiac disease, but the test is negative. So the assertion that the, they are negative for the condition is a false one. So they do have the condition. So condition positive test negative is what a false negative result is. So that's what we say, okay? So if we imagine, okay, you do that test. So let's look at a few scenarios for an SBA question. So someone, um, we've got a child with persistent diarrhea, faltering growth and abdominal distension. They have had their IgA TTG antibodies done and it's been rejected by the test, uh, by the laboratories, I, I apologise, that they are IgA deficient. So what do you do? What do you do? SBA question, what's the next step? What is the next step? So really, if they're IgA deficient, you've got two options. So there's actually two correct answers. You've got, you can use the IgG anti-TTG. So it's still anti-TTG, but you just use IgG rather than IgA or your endomycial antibodies or EMA. So that is your, there could be, obviously, if it's a single best answer, they could only include one of those options, okay? Because there's no way of choosing based on the guidelines 
between the IgG anti-T2G or EMA. So the second thing is, if what happens if someone's got a normal IgA level, so they haven't got a false negative because of IgA deficiency, but their IgA levels are normal and their TTG is negative, what we would say is that celiac disease is unlikely if you have got TTG negative in the presence of normal IgA levels because you can't attribute the low levels of antibody to IgA deficiency. If you've still got clinical suspicion, then you need to do a duodenal biopsy, sometimes called a small bowel biopsy, if you've got high clinical suspicion. The second thing is if your TTG is raised, but less than 10 times the upper limit of normal, they recommend a duodenal biopsy. So that would be four biopsies from D2 or lower and one to two biopsies from the cap of the duodenum. So they will take multiple biopsies. So this is the interesting bit that has really changed kind of SBA question writing for celiac disease. Because the next point is, notice I said in the previous one, if the TTG is raised, but less than 10 times the upper limit normal, why is that significant? Well, because if your TTG is raised, and greater than 10 times the upper limit of normal, you can either perform a duodenal biopsy or you can take a further blood sample to check your endomysal antibodies and perform HLA, DQ2 and DQ8 typing. If endomysal antibody positive and either DQ2 or DQ8, the diagnosis is confirmed without the need for a duodenal biopsy. Okay, so think about kind of SBA questions you could have with regards to diagnosed celiac. So through writing a question, the ways you would be assessed is you won't get told that the diagnosis is celiac disease. You will get a highly suggestive history and someone could say to you, right, how do we investigate this person? So they could do it from the perspective of saying they've already had some tests done and they're IgA deficient. And then you would say to them, if they're IgA deficient, you then do it with IgG anti-TTG or endomycial antibodies. They could phrase the question slightly differently and the person could have a normal IgA level and IgA TTG negative. I think the big one and where um, you could assess if candidates in SBA exams have been keeping up to date with recent guidelines is that if the TTG was raised but greater than 10 times the upper limit of normal. Again, this is in a really nice flow chart that will probably explain it a lot better than me. So when can we, other situations where we could suspect celiac disease is in some patients with juvenile idiopathic arthritis, epilepsy with associated intracranial calcification and unexplained neurological problems such as palsies, neuropathies and migraine. Okay. Need to make sure there's a decent amount of gluten intake before. Okay. So initial screening of patients with celiac disease, just to go over things again. 
initial screening requires total IgA and IgA anti-TTG antibodies. If you have got positive anti-TTG or IgA deficiency requires more tests. Okay. In the case of IgA deficiency, if your IgG anti-TTG would be used instead. Okay, so if you've got IgA deficiency, you then need to use IgG anti-TTG rather than IgA, and you can use your anti uh, endomycial antibodies. Okay, so if you have got symptomatic patients, so if you have got serology negative, but you've got a high clinical suspicion, so they've got chronic diarrhea, faltering growth, IgA deficiency, positive family history, you'd be probably well advised to perform endoscopy and take duodenal biopsies. So if they're asymptomatic, they can often have um, surveillance. Confirmation of the diagnosis. So anti-TTG antibody positivity alone is insufficient for diagnosis, okay? So children should not be started on a gluten-free diet on the basis of an antibody test alone unless their clinical condition is so poor that treatment cannot safely be delayed. For example, a celiac crisis. It is recommended that these cases are discussed with a paediatric gastroenterologist. So again, if you're symptomatic, we'll summarise this in the flow chart. If TTG is negative and IgA is normal, celiac disease is unlikely. If this is because in a similar situation where your IgA is low, then you need to do further testing with IgG. If TTG is raised, but less than 10 times the upper limit of normal, you need a duodenal biopsy. If your TTG is raised above 10 times the upper limit of normal, you take more bloods. So you want to check their IgA endomycial antibodies and determine the HLA-DQ2 and HLA-DQ8 typing. Okay. If their endomycial antibodies positive and they either have HLA-DQ2 or DQ8 on their typing, the diagnosis is confirmed and you don't need a duodenal biopsy. Okay. That's very important. So, what do we do then, which is becoming an increasing thing, when we have got patients who are asymptomatic but have got associated conditions? So we know, for example, if they're a first degree relative or they've got Turner syndrome, Turner syndrome carries with it, you know, a lot of these conditions, six, seven, eight percent risk. Okay? So you would only need to test 15 of these individuals to get one positive result back or something like that. So you've got, for example, type 1 diabetics, selective IgA deficiency, Williams syndrome, Turner syndrome, autoimmune thyroiditis, autoimmune liver disease, 
unexplained transaminitis or being first degree relative of a celiac patient. So our initial screening is we need to check the HLA DQ status and IgA TTG. Okay, so if the HLA typing is negative, celiac disease is very unlikely and you don't need a biopsy. If DQ2 or DQ8 is positive but TTG negative, again, celiac disease is unlikely. So you can repeat the test in a few years' time. If they've got DQ2 or DQ8 positive and TTG positive, but it's less than three times the upper limit of normal, you can check your endomycial antibodies. If it's negative, they don't need a biopsy. If it's positive, they do. If DQ2 and DQ8 are positive and your TTG positive, greater than three times the upper limit of normal, you perform a duodenal biopsy. So the important thing is the changing guidelines through not needing a biopsy is for symptomatic children, not asymptomatic children. Okay. So small bowel histology is graded with the MARSH system. So what we're looking for, so if you want to pause the podcast, what are the small bowel histological findings of celiac? Just pause it now. So the histological findings are villous atrophy with crypt hyperplasia and increased intraepithelial lymphocytes. Okay, so that's what we're looking for. Who to treat with gluten-free diet? Okay, all symptomatic children with characteristic abnormal histology. Why would we give them a gluten-free diet? Well, resolves their symptoms, reversed bone demilarization, resolution of micronutrient deficiencies and likely better height gain, decreased rate of delayed puberty, menstrual problems, subfertility, spontaneous abortions and low birth weight babies. Decreased rate of some intestinal cancers, specifically small bowel lymphoma. Possible preventing of onset of other autoimmune conditions, but the evidence isn't as strong for that one. So, if you've got an asymptomatic child with a condition associated with celiac disease and characteristic histology. So, you've got someone with type 1 diabetes who's been screened for celiac. They've had their serology done, which is positive. They've then proceeded to small bowel biopsy. They're asymptomatic, but they've got characteristic features. They've got villous atrophy, they've got crypt hyperplasia, and they've got increased epithelial lymphocytes on their small bowel biopsy. So what are the benefits of a gluten-free diet? So it can help with the micronutrient deficiency. It can optimise bone mineralization. Unclear whether... Diabetes control improves in the type 1 diabetics. No studies on long-term outcomes. That's an, an evidence gap. So how to treat. So when you've got a diagnosis confirmed by histology, you can start a gluten-free diet. Okay, It's lifelong. There's no shortcuts. You need dietetic support okay, and follow-up. If there's problems with adherence, dietetics input is very important as well to have suggest um, suitable alternatives. So 
we educate the child, we educate the family, we educate anyone who's involved with um, with the child. So that's really important. Okay. So from 2012, only foods that contain 20 parts per million or less can be labelled as gluten-free products. Okay. So it's very important. Um, soups, baked beans and crisps are gluten-free um, and, and stuff like that. So we want things less than 20, which are gluten-free. Okay. Um, so oats are safe for most patients with celiac disease, although about 5% of these patients will be sensitive to oats. Very important that they have uncontaminated oats. These will be labelled as gluten-free. So that's very important. Um, most celiac disease tolerate uh, wheat starch codex and barley malt extract um, lactose free diet is very rarely needed and that's very important so um, tend to be monitored with iron levels calcium levels etc and their anti-tg six to twelve months after starting a gluten-free diet annual clinic assessment urgent clinical review of symptom recurrence um, and some people do use the anti-TTG levels to monitor adherence to a gluten-free diet um, which is important um, so that's that's basically what we do so um, the pneumococcal vaccine is recommended for patients with celiac disease because previously um bit uncertain so I just wanted to finish off by clarifying a few terms that you might see so classic celiac disease presents with signs and symptoms of malabsorption so signs and symptoms of malabsorption are diarrhea steatorrhea weight loss iron deficiency anemia or growth failure non-classic celiac presents with symptoms that are not related to malabsorption, such as abdominal pain, constipation, transaminitis. These are not malabsorptive symptoms. Symptomatic celiac disease is characterised by clinically relevant, evident gastrointestinal or extra-intestinal symptoms. Asymptomatic celiac disease is found in persons with positive diagnostic tests for celiac disease, but with no intestinal or systemic symptoms. Subclinical celiac disease when you have signs or symptoms um, which aren't sufficient to trigger screening. Potential celiac disease is those with positive serology, but normal small bowel biopsy. Celiac disease autoimmunity is defined by positive TTG or endomycial serology on two occasions without a definitive diagnosis. These patients require a small bowel biopsy to see if they have actually got celiac disease or if they've got potential celiac disease. Refractory celiac disease is a persistence or recurrence of malabsorptive symptoms and signs with villous atrophy on small bowel biopsy despite a gluten-free diet for a year. Non-celiac gluten sensitivity is when they have 
um, an adverse response to ingesting gluten, either symptomatic or on small intestinal biopsy, in whom celiac has been excluded. Potential causes of this are a non-IgE-mediated food allergy. Okay. Terms that are no longer used, silent celiac disease, latent celiac disease and overt celiac disease are no longer recommended. So today's talk um, will be followed up by a PowerPoint presentation. But it's basically to give you an introduction to celiac disease and kind of signs and symptoms that are suggestive celiac disease. The groups of patients that will be asymptomatic, but what conditions are associated with celiac disease and therefore can increase your um, suspicion and decrease your threshold for testing these patients. The role of IgA TTG, IgG TTG and endomycel antibodies, as well as when to do small biopsy, bowel biopsy, and actually in situations where you can get away with not doing a biopsy, um, but diagnose on the basis of positive serological markers. Talk about gluten-free diet and its benefits for both those patients who are symptomatic and those that are asymptomatic. And finally, clarifying a few terms that are widely used in the context of celiac disease. Thank you very much for listening and PowerPoint presentation to follow. Thank you.